This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso and today, my little creative goblin, I have a very spooky special for you with a cinematic flair. I'll be chatting with Joel Mears, who is the editor-in-chief of Rotten Tomatoes and an overall film and writing aficionado as well as a delightful human being. I wanted to have Joel on the show for two reasons. Number one, Rotten Tomatoes has this really cool editorial section up right now called Scare Central, where they basically detail every scary movie you could ever want or need to know about. And I thought it'd be really fun to do a more themed episode and one where we specifically dive into movies, scary movies, and why we as humans love to be scared. And number two, I think Joel is pretty damn creative and even a rebel. Not only has he expanded so much of Rotten Tomatoes content and grown the social channels as well as the brand awareness, in addition, much of the work Joel has overseen lovingly pokes fun at the brand with cheeky titles such as the book Rotten Movies We Love and the podcast Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong, acknowledging that while it's nice to know how something holds up critically, it isn't everything. And just because a certain critic doesn't like a movie doesn't mean that you won't. In Rotten Tomatoes' words, the score is just the start of the conversation. From our conversation, you'll learn how Joel went from being a little kid in Australia who really loved cinema to the editor-in-chief of Rotten Tomatoes, the early rejection that shaped him, how Rotten Tomatoes really works, how to deal with resistance to new ideas in the workplace, what role reviews should serve and how we should use them slash view them, his take on the future of film consumption and movie theaters, why movies have the ability to move us through life's big moments, Tips for people who want to watch scary movies but live alone, plus some of his picks for the best movies in general, and of course, the best scary movies. If you really want to just get to the movie part, it's about halfway through, but I highly recommend you listen to Joel's full journey because it's honestly very inspiring, and I learned a lot from him. Now here he is, Joel Mears. I want to know, like, what little Joel our little version of you wanted to do and how that kind of transformed into what you do today. Well, little Joel was little Joel in Sydney, Australia. Uh, So definitely did not envision that he would one day be living in New York or LA and working for big entertainment website. I guess little Joel after giving up (laughs) a few months stint of wanting to be an actor, as I think a lot of people probably did when they were five years old and watched The Wizard of Oz too much, (laughs) um, definitely wanted to be a writer of some kind, pretty much all throughout my childhood and throughout school. So that was sort of the driving force is that I loved, I loved reading. I loved, I loved writing. At a certain point, I realized that, you know, I wasn't good at sport carrying plates or maths <laughs> we say maths plural in australia not math but wasn't good at math uh and my talents lie in um writing so i sort of looked at how do you actually make a career out of that and yeah that that led me to journalism and editing and ultimately rotten tomatoes and little joel also was obsessed with movies so mm. from a very young age as i mentioned the wizard of oz nearly every day i wore out the vhs tape on that but you know as i got older and i I know we're going to talk about this later but uh particularly got into scary movies through my older brothers so as a kid they sort of tortured me by making me watch freddy krueger films and all that kind of stuff so uh and i developed a passion for for horror movies and different kinds of films and filmmakers and was a was, was a regular at my local video rental store so i guess those two combined passions ultimately came to fruition and being a journalist who focuses on film and television yes and you're doing that very successfully now at rotten tomatoes editor-in-chief thank you very much <laughs> big fancy title that is i mean it's a big deal but I know in any creative pursuit, there's definitely a lot of rejection. There are redirections, there's pivots. What was a moment in your creative journey where you were rejected or had some sort of failure that you had to recover from? And how did you decide to keep going after that? 
Wow, plenty of rejections in my time. A couple of things. I mean, my first major rejection was when I tried to get a job at the local movie theater and I didn't even get that. No. <laughs> I know. They, one of the interview questions was, what would you do if an elderly man dropped a giant bucket of popcorn in the middle of the foyer on a Saturday night? And I think I flubbed it. I forget what I said. But what I were they looking the right for answer. with that? I don't know. I, I like, felt what did the elderly man have to do with the popcorn? Like, where is the connection? I, I don't, I think maybe the, the fact that he was elderly meant I had to be a level of sensitive or something. Oh. I don't really know, but I answered the wrong thing apparently, which I think was go and tell someone. I don't know. Anyway, that was one rejection. And one small rejection, when I was uh, sort of in later years of high school, early university in Australia, and I was trying to get my work placed somewhere. So I was essentially um, trying to be a film critic, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's where I ended up. But I was, you know, writing to magazines and, and websites and saying, you know, here's samples of my work and if you need someone, etc. And I wrote a letter to email I presume to a magazine called Inside Film in Australia or If Magazine and it was edited by a guy named David Michaud who's gone on to become a film director actually of films that you probably know in a, here uh, and he wrote me a letter back rejecting essentially me but it was very friendly mm. uh, it noted that I had misspelled multiple names in in the email so like Kate Blanchett, for example, was spelled incorrectly. And it was a friendly note to say, if you're going to pitch yourself for this particular talent writing, you may want to, you know, make sure you dot your T's and cross your I's. And that was a real lesson for me and something that I've carried with me ever since. Because uh, it was a young, scarring sort of rejection. Uh, but also it carried, it had a real lesson in there. And then, you know, as a writer, uh, you know, as you would know, as an actress and performer, you're, you're constantly pitching yourself, particularly when you're a freelancer. And so I have always learned from the rejection letters, if that makes, if that makes mm. sense. Particularly if someone's taking the time, an editor who is very busy, I now realize being one, to sit there and read what you've submitted and give you feedback. It's incredibly useful to take that feedback, internalize it and learn from it. I am pretty lucky in the sense that I, I haven't had any major job rejections, really. So I haven't had that. But it's sort of when I've had to pitch myself as someone who is trying to make it as a freelancer, that you get plenty of, of rejections. And uh, the learning is in taking that feedback and I think, you know, using it to build upon yourself. Right. Yeah, that's a great tip. So rather than letting it crush you, learn from it. And then build yourself up and get better so that thing is no longer an issue and then move on. Absolutely. And I think one of the key things about that is that because I had faced that kind of rejection, you know, it's routine rejection for a writer, really. It's I'm not saying calling it rejection feels a bit much, but <laughs> I internalize that. Yes. And I try to improve myself, but I also um, took that, lesson with me today so when somebody is writing to me because i'm in a position of the kind of position that i was writing to back then i will nearly always i think someone's going to call and say you didn't respond to this but i will always try and take the time to respond give feedback because i know how useful that is particularly if you're you're young and coming into the industry and i think the journalism industry now you get a lot of people who don't come up through traditional means so like i had a pretty traditional journey into journalism in the sense that i did an english literature and politics degree at a university and then got a job at a newspaper basically and then learned that way and you know i've had a pretty stereotypical career that doesn't really exist for many people now because there are so few uh, institutions to learn at um, publications to come up through so when i get people who are pitching me and i can clearly see that there's that level of experience that's missing uh, which is not always a bad thing. Different life experiences often make you a better journalist, I can tell you that. Um, but I always take the time to impart whatever knowledge I can on that person. And hopefully it helps them. And if not, well, <laughs> it was therapeutic for me to do it, I guess. Oh, no. I think it helps every time. Even if they can't acknowledge it in the moment, it definitely is a redirection at the very least. So, And mm. it's so kind. The worst thing in the world is to receive nothing or right. to get a lukewarm response. Like, at least tell me why it sucked, <laughs> you know? Right, yes, yes. <laughs> so, Definitely. no, I think that's a real kindness. So now with your job today at Rotten Tomatoes, like, what does mm. a day in the life 
look like for you? Like, what does a job actually entail? Currently? (laughs) (laughs) It's weird. (laughs) Sitting in my one bedroom apartment and taking Zoom calls all day. But no, so we have a great team at Rotten Tomatoes. I think people will often look at the website and think, oh, these numbers just magically appear and there's no human beings behind Rotten Tomatoes, but there definitely is. It's a great team on my side. I look after, I look after, I work with a group of editors and writers who are not necessarily writing movie reviews because we aggregate movie reviews and that's what we do. And that percentage is basically the percentage of critics who gave that film or TV show a positive score. Um, but we do original content. So interviews with, uh, with talent, celebrities, uh, actors, directors, etc. We produce listicles, think pieces, we produce video, uh, we're running social channels. So the typical day in my life, it starts with a meeting, so many meetings uh, with the team where we discuss what we're doing that day, what's coming up, what's trending so you know we'll look at the data for the website and say wow this film is getting a lot of attention maybe we should be looking at doing something about it etc and then uh it's kind of you know it's it's it's, it's, it varies because on some days we'll have a lot of content that i have to you know look at to sort of edit and give notes on whether that's a written piece or a video other times we'll be having meetings where we're actually uh, pitching, um, you know, different video interviews, different things. Sometimes I'll be doing a podcast like this. Yeah. So it really is, uh, it, it varies. What I really love about it, though, is that everything we're doing is creative. So, you know, when we're sitting there in that morning meeting, we're deciding what are the creative ways that we can cover this particular trending property. Um, when we're, you know, even when we get like an interview with someone from a film, it's like we sit there and we're thinking, okay, what? What do we want to ask that's going to get the most out of this person? You know, even when we do things that are sort of very business-minded, like we will start a podcast or something, yeah. uh, that's a really interesting thing to, to conceptualize and, and think what, what do people want to engage with beyond the score at Rotten Tomatoes? Like, how do you create a, a publication that, that touches people and excites them and gets them feeling as passionate about film and television as we do? So... It, it varies. I'll be honest, there is the drudgery of meetings like there is in any corporation. So that, that can sometimes get a little uncreative. The other thing is like, and I miss this about working in an office in some regards uh, during this lockdown period, is that you don't, you, when you are working in an office and you've got brilliant, passionate, interesting, engaged people around you, it's really fun and you're stimulated and I think, you know, you would experience this as well, that we, all those people chose to be creative in their career. You know, there are people who are making videos and creating imagery to share on social or writing pieces or crafting pieces. So it's, it's a really fun environment to work in. That was a really rambling answer. No, no, it wasn't. Um, <laughs> it was great. I mean, I feel like I've got a bird's eye view now. There's like so many things about you and your path. And first of all, I just want to say thank you for your warmth. Like it is so nice to, to be able to feel someone's warmth over Zoom oh. is a real testament. <laughs> thank so you. thank you. It really means a lot. But I feel like you're a rebel. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> you came into to Rotten Tomatoes or Tomatoes. I love the way you mm-hmm. say tomatoes. Purely tomatoes from now on. And you shook things up a bit. You know, you brought in this whole new kind of arm of the brand where you're doing original content. And that is so great. And of course, as like a new leader, it's a great thing to bring in new ideas. But as a new leader who's bringing in new ideas, you can also get pushback. And so I'm wondering, mm. was the overall vibe like, yay, let's do this? Or was it like, no, 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 We've always done things this way. We're going to keep doing them this way. And if you didn't encounter any of that kind of resistance, how did you get through it? So I think the, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm bowing at the feet of my corporate overlords, um, <laughs> but I do, I, I haven't met that much resistance because I think part of the reason that I was brought in, and I don't mean myself as an individual, but the reason that they brought in, you know, an, a new editor in chief with, uh, you know, different experiences, and it could have been really anyone, there are billions, uh, well not billions, but there are many cre- wonderfully creative uh, people who could do this job, was when the company that owns Rotten Tomatoes uh, took it over um, in 2016, they really wanted to invest in original content. So 
Rotten Tomatoes had been doing invisible, not invisible, original content, but it had largely gone in many ways unseen and it wasn't what the brand was known for. So there was a real interest in expanding the scope of what Rotten Tomatoes was to make it, again, we say beyond the score. And so I guess to the extent that I shook things up, when I came in, I really had a few things on my mind to do with the brand was uh, one, to maintain, you, you know, you call me a rebel. I'm, re- I'm so unrebellious. <laughs> oh, I've <laughs> got another thing, one. I've I'm got like, another reason uh, why you're a rebel. Just uh, wait. Well, okay, okay. Um, <laughs> so, so but, but I feel like the brand had a little bit of rebellion, re- rebelness about it. Like it's kind of from the early days of the internet and the name and it's a bit like cheeky, as we would say. So I wanted to really maintain that and lean into it. I wanted to and you know work with a team to expand who the audience for Rotten Tomatoes was. And so what I mean by that is that perhaps, you know, back in the day in the early 2000s, it was very much a hyper film fan, um, superhero blockbuster kind of audience, uh, you know, quote unquote, the geek culture. I wanted to expand the horizons of who could be a fan and, and what it meant to be a fan of Rotten Tomatoes. That meant you know, we, under under my leadership, but working with the team, and it was many of their ideas, we've launched guides for the best LGBTQ films, we've lent into cultural um, guides, you know, we've made a real determination to elevate the voices of filmmakers and creatives from underrepresented groups who probably aren't getting as much um, attention from certain other websites like uh, Rotten Tomatoes. And we've also done that sort of not directly on my side of the business, but on the curation side of the business, the sort of aggregation score side of the business by revamping our uh, critics criteria, the criteria by which critics are approved to come into Rotten Tomatoes. So we revamped that in 2018 to really expand upon the pool of critics that contribute to the site and really open it up to people who are writing for underrepresented groups or doing things on platforms like podcasts, et cetera. That was one thing. It was a kind of representational thing. And then the other thing was to find sort of irreverent ways to open up the brand and think about the way that people talk about Rotten Tomatoes and lean into that. And so that's why, you know, I think there was some reticence among certain, you know, old school members of the team about poking fun at ourselves and that, you know, the score is the score and it's this, you know, it's this, uh, religious thing that we can't necessarily argue with but i'm like well actually people sit there and say oh no 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 no, like that score is totally off so that's why you know we released our first book rotten movies we love to sort of show that yeah a movie can be rotten a tv show can be rotten but it doesn't mean it's bad necessarily it just means that that's the percentage of critics that gave it a thumbs up you may love it and that's sort of where we went with our first podcast which is rotten tomatoes is wrong yeah a podcast from rotten tomatoes this is why so- you're a rebel though that's what i'm saying <laughs> like Imagine like somebody else like having a, a a podcast that says your company is wrong. Oh, I, I know. But... I love it though. I mm. love it because it's so true. Like that's something I'm constantly talking about on my podcast. I mean, I did. So I'm also a musician outside of this, and I did mm. a whole podcast where I just read rejection letters, and I oh, wow. cried and I laughed. But what I realized at the end of this, at the end of that, I mean, I got people who said yes and like put my song on blogs and mm. that too. But at the end of that show, I realized like I'm sitting here. Speaking of tomatoes, I actually don't like raw tomatoes, like in real life, like the, the food. Oh. Um, <laughs> like, I don't like the food. I like the website, <laughs> but okay, I'm not great. a fan of like fr- fresh raw tomatoes. And okay. I realized from that, I'm like, well, I don't go around being like, tomatoes are a bad food. They're bad. I don't like them. And I think mm. that that's what we need to think about so much when we put our creative work out there, that it's not that it's inherently bad. It's not that particular person's taste. And just because it's not their taste doesn't mean that it's not for somebody or for even a big group of people. It's just not for them. And so I love that you're calling this out with the content you're doing, because so many people will go to Rotten Tomatoes, see something that has a 38% and like not watch the movie. And that movie could have been a great movie for them, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I love that you're actually calling that out saying like, Hey, listen, this is still a great resource, but there's more to the picture than just the score. Absolutely. It's we, I mean, the tagline for the podcast is fresh or rotten is just the start of the conversation. Right. But if you look at the way the site actually functions, yes, there is a score and there is going to be the kind of rotten tomatoes user who sees that score because they're coming to rotten tomatoes because they want to discover what they want to watch. And they're like, eh, I want to watch something that's super fresh as opposed to rotten. However, you click onto that film or TV title and you have the score. 
then you have a critics consensus that sort of sums up what the critics are saying. Then you have all of the reviews that we've utilized uh, to produce that score with quotes from those reviews that you can then click into to go and read further about those, uh, read the entire perspective of that particular critic. Then we have an audience score, um, which reflects, you know, general audience rating and audience reviews. So it's kind of, it's a level, you know, so I think there are so many ways that you can engage with the site and also get so much out of it in terms of making your decision or just reading out of interest. And that's kind of what I wanted to reflect on the original content side as well, is that, you know, the, the score, as I said, is really the start of the conversation because there are rotten films I absolutely adore and that are perfect for me. You know, right. our entries in the book are not labeled by name by who wrote them, um, but they weren't all written by one person. I can tell you that. Um, I wrote a lot of them, but like, I wrote about burlesque and the first wives club and death becomes her and all these movies are you know below 50 percent or something on the tomato meter but i adore them and they've traveled with me for many many years and they're kind of like uh you know among my favorites we did we just released an episode of the podcast yesterday about sister act two and we had a movie i love <laughs> myself but which is only at 17% on the wow. tomato meter. I know. And it was actually at 7% at one point, but then some new reviews came in, etc. And my Kiko James, who works at Women in Film, was actually our guest. And that was her favorite movie. And it was a movie that absolutely spoke to her as a young woman in the 90s, growing up a teenager, a choir girl, a woman of color who was seeing representation on screen that she hadn't seen in mainstream Hollywood films. And yeah, it's just interesting. So I, again, in that case, the 17% kicked off the conversation. Right. Yeah. And there's so much more to the story in general. Like what do you think of reviews and like critical reviews? Like what, what purpose do you think they should serve in our movie going or like any art consumption right. experience i mean i love reviews <laughs> <laughs> that's good i i i do i you want to speak about little joel before i as a 14 year old started my own i don't know if you remember angel fire websites no. they were like you know i i mean i think you're slightly younger than me there was a uh you know you could create your own site essentially back in the day and it was like very crappy and stuff but i created a little website called joel's movies where i would like uh -huh. write my little movie reviews that were terrible and i don't think this exists anymore but so and i was passionate about film i used to watch a tv show in australia called uh, the movie show that was then called at the movies it was essentially al siskel and ebert but with a woman called margaret pomeranz and a man named david stratton that was on for like 27 years i was obsessed i used to i used to um download audio of siskel and ebert's reviews on my old dial-up it would take like an hour to download a three-minute review so I wow. love these reviews. I love reviews. I love perspective because they make me think about the film and the TV show and bring ideas that perhaps weren't always in my reading of it, if you know what I mean. Like, so I'm super interested in what a, what a Roger Ebert sees in something because he's seen every film ever made. <laughs> he's older than me. He's got a different experience than me. I'm equally, though, interested in what a young blogger who's coming at something from a black perspective thinks because I also don't have that perspective in my life and I want to know how that's resonating. In terms of how people should use reviews or how they should play a role in their decision making or uh, engagement with film or TV or music as you said, I think that's really up to the individual because what we try to do at Rotten Tomatoes is give the information, give the resources, that's as I said the score, the consensus, the links to the reviews, and then that information, and we make the tools as useful as possible and as reliable and credible as possible. And then it's up to the individual to use it how they want to use it. So there are some people who are going to be like, again, as you said, I see the score, I only want to watch 90%. There are others who are going to want to dive in for perspective. So I think it's a real individual thing. And I, I, you know, I also think that it's large, you know, more large, uh, bigger picture, really important that we have people generating discourse and discussion around art you mm -hmm. know what I mean because art is so important and I don't mean to get overly serious or 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 bleak actually but I'm like you know I live in New York where Broadway will not reopen until the middle of next year maybe 
um, where there's no theater, where we can't go and hear you or someone else sing in a cafe, where it's it's hard for production companies to be producing film and television right now. The dearth in live art that we're experiencing right now is, I think, soul crushing to many people, not just to the economy, but to- No, that's the exact uh, word I was thinking when you were saying that. And then you said it and I'm like, yeah, it's it's been crushing my soul and so many, so many people. But then also what have people turned to alternatively when we've been in lockdown? It's books, it's streaming, it's television, it's old films, it's art, right? So in, we, we, we've experienced this soul crushing absence of a certain kind of art and a stuntedness that's going on. But at the same time, we've all turned to come for comfort to um, to great art in in the, the great art that we have access to, or that perhaps we've put on our watch list for a long time. So I think it's a real, you know, it's a it's a real interesting situation that we're in right now. But I do think it under underpins the importance of creativity, creatives, and art. And uh, I think engaging with that is extremely important. And bringing as many perspectives as you can to engage in that is super important. Beautiful. What an answer. I love it. So <laughs> I, I'm curious too, what do you think the future of filmmaking and film consumption is going to be? Like, will the movie theater come back the way it was? Like, what are, what, what do you think is going to happen? Obviously no one has a crystal ball, but I'm curious. That's a very big question. I know. I know. <laughs> what but, is the future of cinema? Yeah. Can you um, just forecast that for me real quick? <laughs> sure. Uh, we're going to have stuff injected directly into our brains. Um, and I believe it. Place that we're in our craniums. <laughs> Um, no, I think, I think the film going, uh, like the physical theatrical film going experience is not going to go away. Um, I think, yes, you know, I, I don't know in what shape or form or how people are going to feel in the next short term. How do you want to go to see a movie at the cinemas? I mean, not right now, but just in generally. Yeah, definitely. It's the only time yeah. I can shut down. I can shut down Absolutely. my brain. I think people love that experience. And I think, it's such a communal experience to be sitting in a movie theater and laughing with a group of people when something lands exactly right or gasping when a uh, discovery is made or a mystery is unraveled or Halloween, jumping out of your skin and shrieking with an audience. So I think people crave that experience. And I actually think that the lockdown situation and the pandemic and however it plays out with the rollout of vaccines and however quickly, et cetera, there's going to be a point where we do return to the theater. And I think we're going to do it in droves because people have been missing that exact thing that theater gives you, you know, that the, that the, theatrical cinema, cinema, I should say, as, a, as, a, as Australian, that the cinema gives you. That's the exact thing we've been lacking, right? We haven't been able to have three people over kind of thing, uh, to let alone, you know, let alone sit in the theater of a hundred. So that's the kind of experiences we're craving. And so when it's safe and it can be done in a, um, I think people are going to go back to the theaters. And I think, I think, but I also do think it's going to be an interesting business model. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how that's quite a boring talk, but it's kind <laughs> of like, they will be, you know, films will go to theater and they will also go video on demand and maybe that'll happen at the same time. And maybe the windows and all that kind of stuff in terms of when things are released will change. But no, the core will be going, I mean, look at the drive-ins, drive-ins, right? You look at the drive-ins across America, their business has been booming since the pandemic started. And I think that's just, again, that's people want that communal going experience, yeah. communal movie going experience. Absolutely. So, okay. Are you down to do a little movie rapid fire? Like, Oh, Lordy, yes. Yeah. Okay, great. So mm-hmm. this is all just your personal experience, whatever first comes to mind. A movie okay. that inspired you to make film a focal point of your career. Being John Malkovich, Ooh. which is a uh, Charlie Kaufman movie. Oh, is this rapid fire? Do you no, want, no, do you no. Want a I want to hear. <laughs> I want to hear a reason for this one for sure. Uh, Charlie Kaufman wrote this movie. Spike Jones directed it. It's about a man who discovers a portal into John Malkovich's head, and it's very strange. Um, and I actually discovered it uh, by going to Rotten Tomatoes as a fifteen-year-old, I guess. Um, Rotten Tomatoes launched in nineteen ninety-eight. This was nineteen ninety-nine. I was quickly obsessed with the website and I saw that this film had a 90 something percent score and then I saw it reviewed on the movie show by David Stratton which I mentioned earlier and I was like wow okay I'm gonna go and see this film because it's not the kind of film I would normally see it's an art house film I caught a bus to the art house theater in uh, Moore Park in Sydney 
and went and saw it and was like, that's like nothing I've ever seen. And I did not know movies could do that. Um, and so, yeah, that was really what grabbed me. And then I sort of, that art house theater, also the art house theater at which I didn't get a job eventually because of my popcorn answer. <laughs> um, but it, I didn't stop giving them my money. I kept on, <laughs> kept on going and seeing weird films uh, there. And it was, it was really wonderful. It inspired me to think that, you know, uh, people were making art that was worth, really worth talking about. Mm. I love that. You said it, it, um, you didn't know people could make movies like that. That's no. powerful. Yeah, I, I was 15. So my diet was up until that point. Mortal Kombat. (laughs) Very good. Very deep. A movie that instantly lifts your spirits. Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion. Um, (laughs) I don't know if you've seen Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion. Oh, yeah. uh, There is a uh, poster of it on my wall. And it's very funny and lets fold scarves and it warms my heart. Mm. A movie that makes you want to fall in love. Ooh. Uh, maybe that makes me want to fall in love. You may have stumped me here. Um, I really like the original, well, the original, the, the 1960s version of Romeo and Juliet. And that's a real cliche answer for a love movie, I guess. But the, the two leads are so beautiful and it's so beautifully filmed. It's by Zapparelli and the music by Nino Rota, I think it is, is just so sweeping and gorgeous that I, I listen to it when I work and it makes me makes me want to fall in love, I guess. Oh, I'll have to check that. I watched that when I was a freshman in high school, but I haven't seen it since then. So I think I'm that gonna... was the first time I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get back in and see if I can fall in love. A movie that inspires you to get creative. Ooh, I mean, so many of them, but I mean, it's, I mean, I, Beans on Malkovich is kind of one that also inspires okay. me to get creative. But also the sequel to that, well, not the sequel, his follow-up to that, uh, Charlie Kaufman's second film, uh, first film after that was Adaptation, which is about a writer, Susan Orlean, and it, it does inspire me to get creative. Love it. A movie that a lot of people think is a bad film that you actually really love. I, I, I mentioned this before, um, but probably burlesque. Uh, uh, so for those who don't know what burlesque is it's a musical with Christina Aguilera Cher uh, (laughs) Kristen Bell, Stanley Tucci and a bunch of other people and it's a kind of like Save the Burlesque Club story and a young ingenue story with Christina as um, an aspiring burlesque dancer and people think it's trash because it's a soft lit overacted campy film but for all of those reasons and the music and share uh i think it's fantastic i have to watch it. i've still never seen it oh it's so fun the funniest movie you've ever seen Ooh, i mean there are so many right uh what did i i love the thick of it and or in the loop i always forget if it's one of them is a tv series one of them is a film on the same characters uh, which is a British one. Um, but probably the funniest experience I ever had at the movies was watching Bruno, <laughs> the Sasha Baron Cohen. Yes, um, I love Bruno. Right. And I feel Everyone like that Bruno. one's underrated though. And I don't even remember why, I don't even remember what happens in Bruno, but I do remember laughing hysterically because yes, I was going to say, spoiler alert, I've given you answers like Burlesque and Romeo and Michelle. <laughs> I'm a gay man. And I had just, I had just come out to my brother uh, who's a very uh, straight sort of rugby playing guy. And I think it was that night or that week we went to the movies and saw Baruno. And we were in like a, I don't know, it was like a, one of those ones that serves you drinks and stuff, still having some drinks. And I was laughing hysterically and he was laughing hysterically, but he had just, you know, he had just been told that I was gay and he's processing that, I guess. After every joke, he would whisper to me, he goes, is it okay if I laugh at this? Is that okay? <laughs> And I was like, Aww. yes, I'm laughing hysterically too. Uh, so yeah, that was really funny. Oh, well, that sounds like a really like kind of emotional reason as well. So it's not, the jokes were great, but it was also a bonding thing and a way of bringing you and your brother together through this movie. Right. Absolutely. Uh, the other funniest movie, if you just want straight up is Airplane. <laughs> That's another one I have to revisit. It's been or like, scary movie. Probably the 15 scary years. movie is, is actually really funny. Okay, speaking of scary movie and scary movies, mm-hmm. we got to get into Scare Central, baby. <laughs> oh, I love Scare Central. <laughs> Scare Central. Okay, so first of all, tell me what Scare Central is, why you're doing it, what we can find there. 
Great. So Scary Central is a part of the Rotten Tomatoes website that you can go to. Just go to Rotten Tomatoes slash Scare Central. And it's essentially our HQ for all things horror. Um, we do it because we love horror, but we also know there's a huge appetite for that genre, um, particularly this time of year, obviously. With Halloween coming up, everyone gets in the mood. I think it's like October 1, we switch something on the back of our necks and we're like, let's get scared. And so at Scare Central, you will find our guides to various kinds of horror. So are you looking for one of the 200 best horror movies of all time? We got you covered. Are you looking for a scary TV show? We got you covered. Are you looking for best zombies, the essential vampire movies, all of that kind of stuff, slashers, best of the 90s, best of the 80s. We slice and dice this baby up in all sorts of ways. And this year, we're actually putting a focus on cultural scares. I, I would say uh, international terror, but that sounds bad. So we'll say <laughs> global scariness. Um, wow. And we're, we're doing lists of the best Korean and Japanese and Australian and New Zealand and British and French and Italian and, and Black horror, horror films. So really sort of expanding the, the diet that you could have this Halloween. I love it. Okay. I have a quick question because I really mm. want to dive into this, but I currently live alone and I'm terrified of scary mm. things. I do watch some scary things. Like I watch Hush, which I thought was incredible. It's a great film. It's and so scary know, for so someone scary. who lives alone. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, Hush is about, a, sorry, I, I go into my like, now let me explain what this is about. No, no, Hush you should. About, you uh, should. Uh, yeah. A woman who is uh, a writer, I believe, who is deaf, right? Mm -hmm. um, and she's lived, she's gone to write in a basically beautiful house in the middle of the woods, but it's, it's a, it's a house with a, with a, a lot of windows, a lot of glass because there's a man outside and he's looking in. So yeah, it's, uh, and he, she can't hear him. Uh, she can see him, but he can, yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of like your, it's the opening scene of Scream and she was, uh, hearing impaired. And it went on for 90 minutes. And it's That's every minute like is that. tense. It, it's truly incredible. I think I actually watched it because it, I want to say it got nearly 100 for th yeah. the critical score. Um, but really it really deserved it. It's it's incredible. But okay. So you, I think you said, well, you live in a one bedroom apartment. I do as well. So what are your tips for not dying of fear after watching a scary movie when you live alone? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lights, uh, <laughs> Kylie Minogue, uh, the speakers. I'm a little bit opposite to you because I, I am like, let's make it as scary as possible. Like I, I'm pretty hardcore. So I will like <laughs> lights out, uh, light a candle kind of situation. Um, and then get out your Ouija board. Get that, get that volume up. But no, I think, um, you know, also one of the things I do do is because even I don't like to go to bed on, you know, the last scene in Hereditary etched on my mind. Oh God, um, I watched that one too. You that, were braver that than is you say. Terrifying. <laughs> and I also want to ask you about Midsummer, but we could. Let's, oh, we'll I want to hear. I want to hear your explanation. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, I don't know if I can explain it. But <laughs> <laughs> so you know, my tips. Yes, I would say what I do is I usually wash it down with something funny and short. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you're like me, but I have like pandemic playlists. Uh, in terms of streaming and what I watch. And I've generally got one um, or two 20-minute comedies on the boil that I'm usually re-watching. Mm -hmm. uh, so every night before I go to bed, after I've watched, I don't know, a really intense episode of The Boys or I've watched something scary, 
um, I will watch at the moment. It's absolutely fabulous, which is a British sitcom, but it's been other things uh, throughout the pandemic. Uh, so I think your favorite comfort show, whack it on, have a glass of wine, slash a magnum, and then you'll be fine. Okay, great. So the key is watch a scary movie from Scare Central Hub, then yes. do a palate cleanser, and then you can go to bed. Correct. Okay, yes. great. I'm on it. I'm on it. Um, there's so many great lists that you have on on the Scare Central Hub. You mm-hmm. have the best Halloween horror movies of all time. Like, what would you say from that list is your favorite? Well, uh, the best horror movies of all time. My favorite. Uh, it's hard. I'm a Nightmare on Elm Street kind of guy. <laughs> I think you're either a Halloween or a Nightmare on Elm Street guy. And I'm a Nightmare on Elm Street. For those who don't know, that's Freddy Krueger. I believe it was 1984, directed by Wes Craven, uh, about a young woman named Nancy who dreams. And well, it's actually a group of teenagers, one of them played by Johnny Depp, um, who have dreams and Freddy Krueger appears in their dreams. And when he does things to them in their dreams, it happens in real life as well. And it's very scary. It's one, two, never Freddy's coming for you and all of that. So I think that movie is just absolutely terrifying and it's one of those films that my brothers showed me when I was far too young to be seeing it so it's sort of etched in my memory. I also love Scream also by Wes Craven which uh, came out about 12 years later in the mid-90s. I think most people know what Scream is. (laughs) There's a fifth Scream coming. Um, They're reuniting. They're getting the band back together but I think uh, one thing I do think is an absolute Halloween treat that most people don't know about is a film called Trick or Treat. And it's kind of a horror anthology. I believe it came out in 2008 or nine. Uh, and it's fun. It's like scary, but it's like really fun. There's a vampire and werewolf story. There's like a killer kid with a pumpkin on his head. But it's really just a fun, fun and very Halloween themed movie. So it's set on Halloween and it's, it's really great. Why do you think we like to be scared? Mm, I think... I think part of it is what you said about being in your house, right? Or in a movie theater full of people. You're tapping into something that is instinctual and evolutionary for us, that we have fears of danger, but we get to tap into that and experience that in the safety of our home, whether you feel safe or not, (laughs) Uh, or in the safety of a theater full of others who are also having that experience. And I think like the reason we love comedies and perhaps romances is because they tap into motions that are really raw and instinctual and quite extreme. You know, like uh, fear is an extreme emotion, like laugh out loud is an extreme emotion. Romance is an extreme emotion. Yeah, I think to get to experience that in the safety of our own home, rather than ourselves be chased through the woods by Jason or whoever it happens to be is a real rush. Yeah. And maybe it gives us some sense of control. Like I can watch Mm. this, but this doesn't have to happen to me. Like I can watch it and like see Mm. like the unique human experience of fear. But like my fear is only because I'm empathetic. You know, obviously we're not Mm. thinking that while it's happening, but maybe on some subconscious level, it makes us feel like we have control over our own lives. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that because it's always been an interest in the macabre, you know, Mm -hmm. when you think about old, the oldest books ever written kind of thing. So I think there's an element of that as well. And yeah, there is absolutely a a level of control, I think. You can sometimes try and control the screen, like, don't turn around there, don't go in there. (laughs) Um, But yeah. I usually end up like choking myself because I'm like holding myself so hard. (laughs) I'm so scared for the people. Um, I I know. I love those people who just instantly, the moment someone enters a room, where you know it's not going to go well, be like suddenly down on their phones, just like starting to, I can't watch, (laughs) I distract myself with a text message. Is there anything else on the list? I mean, you definitely, you have the worst horror movies of all time list. Is there a movie on Mm. there that you love since this has been a little bit of our theme today? Oh, yes. I believe Urban Legend Final Cut might be on that list with a score of about 7%. For those who don't know, Urban Legend Final Cut is the sequel to Urban Legend, um, <laughs> a film about urban legends that actually happen. Um, and it's really, I mean, it's not a good film. 
<laughs> I'm not going to go there. Uh, but it's so fun. And it, again, taps into a part of, you know, my formative film going years. And as my 15 to 17 year old self loved all those sort of 90s slasher movies. And so I have a real fondness um, for that for that film. And it has a pretty stacked cast, if I can remember, including Ava Mendez and a few other big, Joey Lawrence, and maybe a few other big names. Yeah, I think that would be one I would select. Uh, I also love Valentine might be on that list. Um, there's a lot of lists. <laughs> so uh, Valentine, similar, similar to that, is, uh, is a slasher movie about a guy in a chair mask, kills people, basically. Um, but again, it taps into that sort of late, to, late 1990s, early 2000s um, slasher movement that I'm particularly fond of. Okay, final question in regard. I I just don't even feel like you can call it a horror film, but I know it's like kind of been talked about that way. Midsummer. I've talked about it on the podcast before, so people are acquainted with what it is. What was your main takeaway from that movie? Ooh, don't treat your spouse badly. <laughs> like, be there for her, um, or you will end up in a bear. <laughs> I think so. Here's the thing. What did I take away from that movie? I, well, for context, I will say this. I saw that movie at, and I think it might've been Los Angeles premiere or one of the first screenings at the Arclight Cinema in LA. And so the director was sitting two rows behind me, Ari Aster, who also made Hereditary for those who don't know. And I was sitting with a fellow film person, a critic, a writer, a broadcaster as well, who I won't tell you the person's name, but they um, five they were the whole time going, oh no, no, this is this is too much, quite verbally out loud. And then Ari Aster is a few rows behind us, and five minutes before the film ends, mind you, this is not a short film, so he'd stuck with it for two hours and fifteen minutes maybe, gets up, leaps over the chair, and leaves making quite a noise about what was happening on screen. And I won't fully spoil what was happening on screen, but that was my experience. But I, so yes, I think that movie is extreme uh, at times. It is bizarre. It's interesting. I think it raises a lot of interesting discussions about grief and relationships and ultimately empowerment. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it also just leaves you kind of confused as well. Um, but it's also beautiful. But yeah, it's really the, you, stunning. you really hit the nail on the head with that one. I, I agree <laughs> with everything you just said. My main takeaway was that scene where she was crying and then all the other women were mimicking her crying. Mm. And so what my takeaway was, was that if I could see myself in the moments, not when I'm experiencing true tragedy, but when I'm spiraling about something, I would never allow myself to get that upset. And so mm. it's kind of given me like a little perspective check when, because I, I, I love to like really pound the ground when I cry and ask God why. So mm. it's given like me that. a perspective check when I'm in one of those states to say, if you had like 50 women who are mimicking you right now, what would you feel? <laughs> wow. I, if you're if that kind of like, I feel, I feel like Sicilian kind of <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like crying there. I'm like, and 50 of you in a room, I'm like, ooh, uh, yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, that, I mean, look, Midsommar is uh, very, um, I mean, I'm curious as to what the audience thinks because it, it's definitely, you kind of need to be prepared. Also, it opens in a very bleak way. So yeah. I just say, get prepared for an opening that is going to make you feel things about the film. Yes. Um, and moments that will do that as well. And I don't know if it's a horror movie. That's, that's an interesting discussion, I think. Well, I don't want to extend this too long, but I'm like, <laughs> we're seeing lately the, uh, the, 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 the question of, is this horror? Um, when it comes to some of these more, what, the, what we're sort of terming elevated horror at the moment, um, which is these sort of uh, auteur directors coming in and making really interesting, strange films that sort of skirt or play with horror tropes in the horror genre, but we don't really know if it's horror. I don't know if you saw The Lighthouse mm -mm. Um, last year, but it's, or did you ever see The Witch? No. Okay. Check it out. There's a film called The Lighthouse by the guy who made The Witch about Robert Pattinson. Well, it's not about him, but he plays the character and Willem Dafoe stuck in a lighthouse. Uh, and there's horror moments and mermaids, um, but uh, it's like, is it horror? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think it might be on some of our lists, though. So we'll uh, it <laughs> check it out. Okay, final, final question. We're going to get mm. back to our little Joel. 
I believe creativity is deeply connected to the inner child. So I'm wondering if you and young Joel were standing in the same room and looking at each other. What do you think the little guy would say to you as you today and why? Oh, probably well done. Like, I don't mean to be (laughs) arrogant about it. Like, didn't didn't end up exactly where that guy thought he was going to go, I'm sure. But, you know, what more could he have asked than to have a productive and creatively fulfilled, well, once at the age, but whatever age I am, uh, <laughs> life at this stage in my, in my, my life. So I think that would be, I think that person would be, would be happy with where they ended up right now. And what would you say to him and why? Ooh, <laughs> I would say don't leave London early. <laughs> uh, I, I left an exchange program. I cut it short. And I, I regret that. But I would say, uh, call your mum more. <laughs> mm. That's kind of, I mean, like, you know, you, you know, take advantage of every opportunity, work hard. Don't get too bogged down by in the moment problems or things that you perceive to be world ending in your life because they will, they will pass and you will learn from them. But also as a person who lives on the other side of the world for my family, you can feel detached, etc. And I think it's always rejuvenating for me when I have a call with a family member. And um, that's always helpful. It doesn't happen enough. So I would reiterate to myself as a six-year-old, 10, 12, 25, 30, call your mum. <laughs> that is sound advice for all of us. Uh, Joel, you are a delight. And I'm so excited. I'm so proud of little Joel for what he's grown up to be. You're a wonderful human being. I can just tell from this and you do great work. And thank you for all you do to help people have an evocative emotional experience and feel more human through film. Yeah. And TV. And TV. I'm sorry. And TV. Don't leave out the uh, television. Great no, little gal. Some scary television. <laughs> scary television. The haunting of Bly House. Uh, yeah. So thank you. No, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening and to my amazing guest, Joel Mears. For more information on Joel, you can follow him at Joel Mears on Instagram and Twitter. Check out Rotten Tomatoes at Rotten Tomatoes on all platforms and check out their special Scare Central page at editorial.rottentomatoes.com slash RT dash hub slash scare dash central. I will also link it in the show notes because it's kind of a lot to remember or you can just Google Rotten Tomatoes Scare Central. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard, remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow the show on Spotify, share the show with a friend, and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also tag the guests so that they can share too. You can get my new song, Freak Show, at the link in my bio. And I'm also going to be doing a live show here in Los Angeles, actually in Burbank, on Sunday, November 1st. It'll be social distance and outside. More details will be forthcoming. I'll be posting about it on my social media and talking about it next week on the show. Hope you watch a scary movie this weekend or at least take in some sort of art or creativity that helps you feel more human and brings you joy. Talk with you next week. I love you and I believe in you.